This evening we'll explore some aspects of the third domain or the third foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind. And we'll particularly focus this evening on the transformation and relinquishment of afflictive states of mind. And beginning with a quote uh, about mindfulness of the mind from Nisargadatta Maharaj. By knowing your mind, you may avoid your mind disabling you. You have to be very alert or else your mind will play false with you. It's like watching a thief. Not that you expect anything from a thief, but you don't want to be robbed. In the same way, you give a lot of attention to the mind without expecting anything from it. Some years ago now, I attended a meeting of Dhamma teachers that included teachers from many or most all of the various uh, Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of our guests of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And he went on then to define realization, to define liberation as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of Nibbana, this definition of realization, being the complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind and heart of an arhat. And in hearing His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, speak of this, there was a sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've sat, practiced with Sayadaw Upandita and with Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha also speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom in a very similar way. As our own confidence grows and as it deepens, we too begin to get at least some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and these practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so... Here you all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat, 
and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know to really directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and our mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find, at least to some degree, that we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourself, and what's harmful to others. And we begin then to find that the wholesome states of mind and heart are more and more our experience. They're more readily available in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes a deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals, our deepest aspirations. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom and metta and compassion of the Buddha, the heart, the mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering. And encourages, exhorts those heading towards, suf- towards suffering, heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life This way of seeing can really be a great inspiration and inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there certainly have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and the practices. And when I've been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of 
actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings as well as for my own practice has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. He said this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice meeting with Pawak Sayadaw, I went in and I said, Sayadaw, this is too hard. This is just too hard. Well, Pawak looked at me, looked up and looked at me with this great kindness in his eyes and some light laughter in response. And he said, simply said, no, it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha are really filled with this approach to the practice. So this evening we'll specifically explore just a few of the difficult or afflictive uh, states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them. In the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new, maybe angers, fears, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains, It's a long list. From our present life's experience and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experience. And some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored or maybe hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including the things that maybe have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. And very important in relationship to our practice, it's not about dredging up, not about digging up afflictive states of mind. They'll show up, as you all know. 
most all of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or maybe we've judged as unacceptable and buried away the skeletons in the closet that maybe we've been hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly, maybe for a long time. The poet and translator Stephen Mitchell has a version he's written of the myth of Sisyphus. And this is his version of that. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness, every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of mindfulness, concentration, investigation, metta, compassion, equanimity, each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience. This enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With mindfulness and concentration grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire and attachment, sadness, shame, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or maybe the habit of trying to get rid of it or trying to fix it or trying to maybe ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing sort of attitude we begin to realize through our practice that none of these habitual reactive patterns really truly serve us. When we begin to meet and see these 
reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness. The door to clear seeing, or what I like to call seeing through, is opened. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our room, so to say, with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, maybe yesterday or five years ago or 30 years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha, rain saddens what is kept wrapped up but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, Let it, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore, that we're ignorant of. And some words from Bhante Gunaratana from his, the Sri Lankan monk, Bhante Gunaratana, from his book, Mindfulness in Plain English. He said, view all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And I add, within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves, our mind, our body, our heart. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. And to change, they must come to the surface and be acknowledged, accepted, and clearly seen. And it takes time. We can't hurry it. We just simply resolve and we persevere with a growing patience. And the rest will take care of itself, so to say. And sometimes there's a resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And it can be kind of a vicious circle. 
And so we practice with great gentleness and kindness and a deep patience for and with ourself. And through this process of opening to and relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering, relinquishing our addictions of mind. Again, from the great Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who I started this talk with uh, some words from him, he says, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch, observe, inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. So I'd like now to take a bit of a look at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. And this is the suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world Everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and consequently conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet, so often, we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things taking, for instance, our experience and things as though to be quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always, eventually, create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and we project into the imaginary future solidifying both in our mind, and yet life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life, not an absolute One Zen teacher said, suffering is optional. (laughs) In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, during the midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. 
And in this, in the big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows. <coughs> so a rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right, right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes quite quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's very obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent and unchanging and identifying any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, pleasant or unpleasant physical or mental experience, the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. The present moment, this present moment, and this one, and this one. Just as it is right now, right here. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. We have this saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's teachings, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. (laughs) With ignorance, in fact, providing very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration 
or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or really true understanding that's experienced as the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion, which is caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. And this is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So now, going on with exploring a few uh, specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states, and we'll begin with fear. In our practice and in our life, outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe I can't be, or I'm not sure that I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience, or this old familiar experience, or this strong emotional state, or this pain in the body, or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe sometimes feeling frozen or caught or just simply unable to open to and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind. If we take it up, if we believe it, it's, it's his fault. It's because she, it's because they, it's because this place, it's because of the weather, etc., etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, maybe feelings of unworthiness, of not being good enough, or just not being enough. Maybe not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect, whatever perfect might mean to each one of us and it's different for each of us. And really all of this is rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another uh, approach to perfection that's probably different from how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this comes from the Taoist master Zheng Tzu. 
his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect person is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect person can act without effort. We may, some of us may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, doubt, blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourselves or outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think often that we're afraid of the fear. We're really afraid to look directly at it. Especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found that it may not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice meeting with, uh, with him and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, Well, Marcia, fear is just fear. Well, when I first heard this, it didn't make me happy at all. (laughs) My inward response was, well, that's really easy for you to say. I didn't say that out loud, but I thought it and felt it. And there was certainly, obviously, some degree of resistance and quite a bit of irritation in my thinking. But it stuck. This was years ago. It stuck a long time. And eventually I began to see that, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice, rooted in mindfulness and kindness in relationship to ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear to come close to it, to look it in the eye, so to say, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it. And, very important, not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz said, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As our mind and our heart get stronger and our mindfulness and concentration and meta-muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear. Accept that it is and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, it's not me, it's not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens, yes. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is 
totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know, and some, many which we may never, ever see. It may be a moment of very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. What happens? We learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear. We learn to lose the fear of fear. And we begin to see it clearly. We begin to see through it, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A few years ago, I read an article in National Geographic magazine. It was about a 40-year-old woman, German woman named Gerland, who was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. And she was with a, a climbing group, a small climbing group, which included her husband, Ralph. So in this article, both Ralph and Gerland, uh, there were quotes from them discussing their fear, talking about their fear, their experience of fear. So Gerland's husband, Ralph, said, Ralph said, Ralph said he relishes how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And Gerland, in relationship to fear, Gerland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she said she didn't feel afraid. Out of the group, only Gerland and one other person reached the top of K2. And when Gerland reached that uh, place, she took the little Buddha out of her backpack that she was carrying and put it on the top of K2. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. And of course, it doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies because what happens? They just reappear. Putting a tight lid on our emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities, which keeps the possibility of purification at bay. And of course, it's not uh, about blindly acting out and blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And again, I've mentioned this already, but something very important to remember is that our practice is not about 
purposefully dredging up and then miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection rooted in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. Within a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or without pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. So now I'd like to take a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling hot spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. From this perspective, it can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and identified with her anger and in fact spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would get close to her And then they would feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away. Consequently, she was quite a lonely person. And yet so identified in her mind as an angry person, and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose the fuel for her life, if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself to open to and be with and to clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger, fear, jealousy, irritation, Our practice changes our mind. And it's about making the choice to transform our heart, to transform our mind. It actually opens the heart and it gives us the strength to not turn away. The strength to not distract ourselves and to not pretend anything, but to really stay present and still and be here in relationship to what is. With our practice, we've chosen to experience things just as they are, with a very natural strength 
that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year for two months, and then uh, <clears throat> the one month for the second year. And one student who stayed for the whole two months of practice the first year <coughs> was a man in his early 40s, a very successful big city businessman from Warsaw who had quite diligently practiced Zen and Karate and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to this two-month Vipassana Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. This man had grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time throughout his childhood. With this fear still present to some degree in his adult life, but much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habits, thoughts, and words and actions of that same ill temper. And he described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his Buddhist practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practices and his interest in Buddhism and meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Pajeka, Poland, that I taught and that he attended, this man very diligently at home mindfully practiced metta with one phrase, may I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. He said that as the year progressed, he began to recognize his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner and sooner in its process. And consequently, he said he was able to let it go more and more often early on in its process. He returned to Prajeka for the month of retreat practice the following year that I was offering, and he was a much changed and much happier man at that time, by that time. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective pretty much vanish. One often feels restless and driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self looms quite large. So does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is 
that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as kind of as though a line has been drawn that isn't to be passed, isn't to be crossed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that I think is both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed, that wasn't met with mindful attention. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends upon the quality, the focused strength and depth of our mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many different components, thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations, with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness or doubt or greed or clinging or expectation or disappointment, it's very helpful to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind, as I like to say. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body, feeling the emotion directly and in itself without the story. So what are you feeling? Well, maybe heat, maybe tightness, maybe pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? How is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning, at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction then. Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness, grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is 
too strong to sit with. Do not force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and also maybe into the breath with the walking. Or you might open to the natural world outside. For instance, the expanse of the fields, the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky, the smells, the sounds, the sensations of, the, of warmth on your skin or coolness touching your skin. Take an interest. Notice the birds, chipmunks, squirrels, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Indulge is the word. Don't indulge thinking. Thinking happens, but don't indulge it. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is actually pretty amazing. Really beyond compare. In a really quiet, quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be an immediate experience and a clear mirror for us. So remember, remembering at this moment uh, uh, the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, it doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, maybe such as power or control or pleasure or status or prestige or or recognition, with a clear, uh, non-self-absorbed concentration and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness, therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, doubt, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire clinging, attachment, tanha in Pali, in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind is clouded, we're caught 
in the energies of greed and attachment. We're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis, people blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, in order for us to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. So, for instance, it's in part what got you here on retreat. In light of our exploration uh, this evening, I'd like to share a prayer, <clears throat> a personal practice that I was uh, sent, it was sent to me in the mail, that I was told was um, uh, one of Mother Teresa's practices. And I changed one word uh, at the beginning. She says, deliver me, O Jesus. I'm saying, deliver me, O Dhamma. Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. Maybe nothing left out there. Very shortly after I received this in the mail and read it, I got a phone call from a friend and I said, oh, I have to read you this. I just got this in the mail. And I read it to him over the phone and his response was, Oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) Well, yes, true. But I I have to say, every time I read this prayer, I find it quite inspiring, quite inspiring. Many of us can get quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and also expend quite an incredible amount of energy and time trying to hold on to uh, or get something back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. So maybe even here in retreat, maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day, or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you had on retreat last year or five years ago. It's the contraction, 
the clinging, the attachment, and the self-centeredness, the identification around desire, that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So a really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while, not too often, but every once in a while, how driven am I by my desires? So a very simple, uh, quite mundane personal experience. Some years ago I was at a retreat center in New Mexico teaching that had some of the most wonderful, still probably has, some of the most wonderful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and I noticed a really sweet smell. So I followed my nose to uh, where the smell was coming from. And uh, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to this flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But all I wanted to do was just stay there and continue experiencing this sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and just simply go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. And I was experiencing tightness in the body and a degree of burning irritation in the heart and mind. I got up and I walked away uh, to do what needed to be done next. But there was still a clinging to this sweet smell, even though it was totally gone from my field of experience. I was attached at that point to the memory of it, wanting it back, and planning when I could get back to that garden, imagining how nice it would be later when I could finally get back there. What a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but maybe, but really rather, not maybe, rather, a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And, as we all know, it happens very quickly. It can happen very quickly. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion and clear seeing and clear seeing and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. This is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity to, of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. 
Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. As we begin to sense and see and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. And for many people, I think, there's often some confusion, some delusion that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. And it's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to really see it and know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And on through each of the six sensors the same way. And then he went on to say burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning of the fire of confusion, he said. Some years ago I found a recipe, and at risk of giving you a recipe that you maybe already have and occasionally cook up, I'd like to share this one with you. It's a recipe for unhappiness. And the ingredients, one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, a quarter cup of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, and two teaspoons of perfection, four sprigs of envy minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach the leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in a food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. (laughs) Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. Um, And the same teaching uh, from the Chinese sage Nan Shin said in a quite a different way. By not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so, 
We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, investigation, all rooted in kindness that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up and swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, and maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And just a short passage from the Mahayana Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passion. When I uh, first uh, came across this, Uh, This teaching was really an acknowledgement that as human beings we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our practice. The suffering, the anguish, and the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent, potent aspect of the process of awakening, with these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states can be digested into wisdom. So for just a moment now, I'd like to look at just a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger, without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly, it's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness, 
without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great, strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of, we learn to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. About 18 years ago now, I took my mother in to live with me at my home in Taos, New Mexico, which turned out to be the last 16 months of her life. Early one morning, at the age of 92, she died in her bed. And within a short time after her death, as I was sitting very closely and attentively with her body in her bedroom, I very clearly saw all of the tension, the accumulated tightness of anxiety, fear, irritation, and clinging. I saw all of this just dissolve from her face with the transformation in my mother's face into an exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was really a very powerful teaching and inspiration for me towards deepening my practice in the here and now with a strong sense of Why wait until death for this peace? Why wait until death for this ease? Our continuing diligent practice right here in retreat and in our daily lives is bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, inclusive, with humor, with goodwill, kindness, compassion, and wisdom, and with more time and energy available to live to our heart's content. And closing the talk this evening with a poem, It's called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. And some of you probably know Hokusai was a very famous Japanese painter and his most famous painting was of this huge wave starting to lap over, 
It looks like fingers as it's lapping over, kind of grasping or reaching towards, reaching down. And underneath this huge wave is a little tiny boat with some people in it. And this is the poem. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look carefully, or look, he says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength are life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we close our Dhamma talk evening as usual. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.